Africa rise and shine Africa tsoza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25-meter band to West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figi In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sour, Ethiopia's new president vows to work hard to maintain peace in the region, and U.S. inquiry into alleged Russian meddling during the 2016 election could be under threat. In economics news, Nigerian Central Bank to meet MTN lenders over $8 billion fund transfer. And in sports news, a Springbok coach names his team for a test against France. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Ethiopian police are trying to identify 200 bodies after discovering a mass grave near the border between the Somali and Oromia regions. Thousands of people have been displaced over the past year by violence in the region. The grave was reportedly found during a probe into alleged atrocities committed by the former president of Ethiopia's Somali region, Abdi Muhammad, who is awaiting trial over allegations that he fueled ethnic clashes. The BBC's Will Ross reports. A report on the state-affiliated broadcaster FANA says the Ethiopian police found the mass grave whilst carrying out an investigation into alleged atrocities committed by the former president of Ethiopia's Somali region. Abdi Mohamed was forced to resign in August and is in prison awaiting trial over allegations that he fuelled ethnic clashes near the border between the country's Somali and Oromia regions. A notorious regional security force known as the Liu Police is accused of carrying out killings in the area and it reported directly to the regional president. Police in the Democratic Republic of Congo say 17 members of an insurgent group in the central region of Kasai were killed on Wednesday and others captured in an army ambush. The prisoners are being held at army headquarters pending their transfer to the provincial capital Kananga. The security forces in the Kasai are fighting a group of militia whose members often melt into the local population according to local authorities. The region exploded into violence in August 2016 after a tribal chief known as Kamwinan Sapu was killed by security forces. Senior figures in Gabon's ruling party have called on the government to clarify the condition of President Ali Bongo, whose hospitalization in Saudi Arabia has fueled speculation that he is incapacitated. The Consultative Committee of the Gabonese Democratic Party says clarity is necessary to assure the public. 59-year-old Bongo fell ill last month during a visit to Riyadh to attend an economic forum. Gabonese government officials say doctors have diagnosed him with severe fatigue and ordered bed rest. However, a foreign source says Bongo suffered a stroke. 
New regulations to restrict asylum claims by migrants have been published by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. It will no longer allow people who enter the United States illegally to claim asylum. The move is to largely affect migrants from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador who are currently attempting to cross the U.S. border with Mexico, hoping to flee violence and poverty in their home countries. The BBC's Chris Buckler reports. What this is an attempt to do is to try and put in place a system that discourages people from illegally entering into the country. Of course, we've had this family separation policy, which the Trump administration really moved themselves back at. What they're trying to find is a new system which tries to ensure the borders are more secure. They believe that this is a policy that could work, but it is going to end up in the courts. And finally, hundreds of Israeli teenagers who live near the border with Gaza have marched for five days to Parliament to protest about their lack of security. Tensions have increased along the border in recent months, the BBC's Yolanda now reports. Some of the high school students who organized this protest live just two kilometers from Israel's border with Gaza. Recently, they say their families have regularly had to take shelter because of incoming rockets and they've been on constant lookout for balloons carrying incendiary devices. Israel's president met the students, some of whom had bandaged feet after their long walk, and gave his support. Since protests along the Israel-Gaza border began in late March, over 200 Palestinians have been killed by live Israeli fire. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, November the 9th, the 313th day of 2018, with 52 days left in the year. Now, going back in time to today in 2008, South African singer Miriam Makeba dies at the age of 76 after a 30-minute performance for Roberto Saviano in the Italian town of Caserta. Nicknamed Mama Africa or the Empress of African Song, Makeba's music transcended South African borders and entered the global stage. Today in history, in the year 2008. Today in history, Zenzile Miriam Makeba died on the 9th November 2008. Nicknamed Mama Africa, was a South African singer, songwriter, actress, United Nations Goodwill Ambassador and civil rights activist. Associated with musical genres including Afro-pop, jazz and world music, she was an advocate against apartheid and white minority government in South Africa. Born in Johannesburg to Swazi and Kosa parents, Mageba was forced to find employment as a child after the death of her father. Her vocal talent had been recognized when she was a child and she began singing professionally in the 1950s with the Cuban Brothers, the Manhattan Brothers, and an all-woman group, the Skylarks, 
performing in mixture of jazz, traditional African melodies, and Western popular music. In 1959, Makeba had a brief role in the anti-apartheid film Come Back Africa, which brought her international attention and led to her performing in Venice, London and New York City. Mama Africa, we remember you. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Ethiopia's President Saleh Work Zwede says her country will work hard to maintain peace in the region. The newly elected president of the Horn of Africa country spoke exclusively to our foreign editor Sophie Mugwena on the sidelines of the Africa Investment Forum in Santon, Johannesburg. Zwede also spoke about her new role and says her country has made progress in appointing women to key leadership positions. If someone was to ask your background in terms of your work previously can you please take us through that journey up to now where you are today okay um it's it's good to be back to south africa first of all um i started uh, um, in the ministry of education then uh, it was foreign affairs uh, then i rose to the rank of ambassador and for 20 years consecutive I've been ambassador to Senegal, all neighboring countries of Senegal, Djibouti, 10 years in Djibouti, 4 years in Paris, and 4 years uh, ambassador to the African Union and the ECA. Then I joined the UN where I was uh, assistant secretary general and heading the peace um, political mission in the Central African Republic. Then I rose to the rank of under secretary general when I became Director General of the only UN headquarters in Africa, which is based in Nairobi. Uh, I served uh, seven years and a half. And last July, I joined the United Nations Office to the African on Union, only to serve for three months before I was, uh, you know, uh, called to serve by again Ethiopia, and uh, which I am very proud of uh, having accepted. When the Prime Minister make a call to you or a request or Ethiopia made a request that you should take this position, how did you feel? Well, you know, the first uh, instinct say, would I be able to do it? And I think it's for all of us, this is the first reaction. And second, it's to weigh really the, the, the great honor. And most of all, it's a call. And when the country needs you, you have no excuse to refuse. So I said at this stage of my career and so on in my life, if there is anything that I can do for my country, this is the time and I'm very much honored to have been chosen for this position. You are not the only woman currently in that country who is occupying a very strategic and an important position in that country, not only in the country but also on the continent. We have the president of the Supreme Court and other women who were elected in different ministries, very strategic ministries. What a shift in Ethiopia. How did we arrive at this? Indeed, it's a big shift. It's a big change of mindset. It's about taking seriously the women empowerment and gender equality issue. It's an issue that we are carrying from the 20th century, again on the 21st century. This has to end. 
And uh, we have currently a leadership in Ethiopia believes that we cannot do it without half of the population, which are women. And as you have rightly noted, we have on the continent, you know, many uh, female ministers, women ministers, but uh, in our case, it's 50% of the cabinet. And as you have rightly noticed, it's the main substantive ministries that they have, they are leading currently. And I think we have not seen the end of it. This will definitely emulate others. This will Im inspire other women. Uh, we would say, well, if they can do it, then I can also do it, or I can try to do it. But as a woman, we always have to be careful. The fact that when you are in high position, uh, these are political appointments, you have to look at others who have to fill the gap because in the middle you, you, you see a vacuum. So it's, it's all very important to look at those, to, to support them, to train them, to mentor, for them to go up the ladder and occupy the place. That In any case, um, well, experience has shown that uh, if you give the opportunity, they can do it, and they can perform. So we'll try to prove that we are able for the job. The country is also powering ahead in terms of ensuring that uh, it is at peace with all the neighboring countries, Eritrea. Again, there a political will. Will the whole nation and the region support you in your quest to ensure that there's peace in the region, in the Horn of Africa? I have no doubt in my mind that uh, our population in Ethiopia and, and the whole uh, in the region wouldn't want peace. I mean, uh, this is a region that has suffered from lack of it. Um, Ethiopia has gone, you know, lost many years because of that. But, uh, you know, it, it takes a bold uh, decision, vision for the region to get where we are today. Uh, as a diplomat of my country, I mean, there are things which you think it's impossible, like you know, a normalization mm -hmm. uh, with Eritrea so fast in the short period of time. But it happened. And uh, it, you go beyond that. You elevate it to a, a certain level that those issues that were, you know, mm -hmm. between you and, and your other, other neighbors become irrelevant, if not irrelevant, minor to the benefit that you have in coming together. So for Ethiopia, this normalization is helping, I mean, a lot, not only Ethiopia and Eritrea, but the region as a whole. But our uh, vision is to have the same kind of a relationship with all our neighboring countries. So this is where, where we are working on, to have a real regional integration that we talk so much about, that we have difficulties in getting to, I think that's uh, a good start. And this wind of hope that we see in the horn, I think it's, it's going to last. And that is Ethiopia's President Saleh Work Zude speaking exclusively to our foreign editor, Sophie Mugwena, on the sidelines of the Africa Investment Forum here in Johannesburg. Democrats in the United States have raised concerns about interference in the investigation of Special Counsel Robert Mueller after the firing of Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Wednesday. The forced resignation of one of Donald Trump's earliest supporters because of the president's unhappiness that he recused himself from overseeing the Mueller probe has set off alarm bells that the country may be heading for a constitutional crisis. President Donald Trump swiftly appointed Matthew Whitney 
Whitaker, the new acting Attorney General, a man who served as Sessions Chief of Staff and who has been a long-time critic of the scope of the Miller investigation. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It was a sudden farewell for Trump's former Attorney General very first Republican senator at the time to break ranks with his colleagues and go in with a candidate not many initially took seriously. But the president's unhappiness with Sessions has boiled over in public after his recusal from overseeing the Miller probe in March last year due to his close affiliation with the Trump campaign. Jessica Levinson is a political commentator and a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. He's signaling things that he has said very explicitly without sending any signals whatsoever, which is he does not like Jeff Sessions. He really does not like Jeff Sessions. He thinks he's a traitor. He does not think he's a good attorney general. And he was literally waiting for the moment that the midterms were over to be able to fire him. I think he's also signaling the fact that he wants somebody who's thinking is more in line with his to be in charge of the Mueller investigation. And that's Mr. Whitaker. And so what he wants is somebody who's using words about the Mueller investigation like fishing expedition, like disgrace, and I think that's what we will largely get. Trump tweeted, as he does when he fires members of his administration, that Sessions would be replaced by Matthew Whitaker, who wrote a 2017 op-ed that the Mueller probe into Russian interference and possible collusion should be limited, warning that without clear boundaries, it could resemble a witch hunt, terminology the president himself often uses to describe the investigation. My guess is that Robert Mueller has already shared some information to the extent possible with state attorney generals, uh, with other federal prosecutors, because he very rightfully has worried that any day could be, frankly, uh, the last day of the Mueller investigation. And so I also think what we have with Whitaker is someone who has said there are places you cannot go in this investigation. And so I think Mueller is acutely aware of the fact that there will be somebody overseeing this who is worried about this timing and the scope. Your thoughts on the acting attorney general, sir? Are you worried about the future of the special counsel investigation, sir? Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who didn't comment to reporters when he left his home early Thursday, had been overseeing the investigation to date. Professor Levinson explains that it's likely he'll be pushed aside by his new boss. It's not clear right now what this means for Rosenstein, except that I do think Whitaker is taking over, and therefore he would be, quote-unquote, off overseeing the Mueller investigation. My guess is he was never terrifically jazzed to be in charge of the Mueller investigation to begin with, Um, but I think that he will likely be reassigned to something else. Democrats who swept to the majority in the House of Representatives this week have raised their concerns. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Protecting Mueller and his investigation is paramount. It would create a constitutional crisis if this were a prelude to ending or greatly limiting the Mueller investigation. And I hope President Trump and those he listens to will refrain from that. I find the timing very suspect, number one. But number two, num- the, our paramount view is that any attorney general, whether this one or another one, should not be able to interfere with the Mueller investigation in any way. With a newfound oversight authority in the House, Democrats are expected to convene hearings and call witnesses when they take over in January 
in their quest to investigate this president's actions and hold him to account. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Residents of the Somali capital Mogadishu have celebrated the historic win of Ilan Omar to the U.S. Congress. The former Somali refugee became the first Muslim woman elected to Congress on Tuesday and said she draws her inspiration from her journey as a refugee in Kenya's Dadaab refugee camp in the 1990s. In Kenya, her victory sparked heated debate on social media, with some criticizing Kenya's treatment of Somali refugees. Sarah Kimani reports. Well, Kenyans on Twitter congratulated Omar. Their Somali counterparts berated them for what they termed as Kenya's restrictive refugee policy. In her native Somalia, residents celebrated the win. It's a great pleasure for Somalis to see that Ilhan Omar was elected to be a congresswoman. And it's a step forward that Somalis have taken part in free and fair elections in the most powerful country in the world. I'm very happy to hear that Ilhan won her campaign. And this also shows us that women can hold a top position in any government around the world. About a quarter million Somali refugees live in Kenya's Dadaab camp under tough conditions which include regular police harassment, overcrowding and reduced food rations. Omar told Reuters news agency in an interview that her journey from Somalia is her inspiration. As uh, an immigrant, um, you know, I I understand and love this democracy in a way that um, only someone who had experienced the absence of it could. While Omar is living the American dream, many young Somalis like her are still in refugee camps in Kenya and the East African region. For some, that dream shattered after President Donald Trump's administration barred arrivals into the U.S. from seven majority Muslim countries, including Somalia. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. Today in history, Zenzile Miriam Mageba died on the 9th November 2008. Mama Africa, we remember you. I ask you and all the leaders of the world, would you act differently? Would you keep silent and do nothing if you were in our place? Would you not resist if you were allowed no rights in your own country because the color of your skin is different to that of the rulers? And if you were punished for even asking for equality? I appeal to you and through you to all the countries of the world to do everything you can to stop the coming tragedy. I appeal to you to save the lives of our leaders, to empty the prisons of all those who should never have been there. Mama Africa, we remember you. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says Africa's integration is key to attracting investment and growing the continent's economies. He was speaking at the opening of the Africa Investment Forum in Santon, north of Johannesburg. A number of heads of state and government are attending the forum, which seeks to provide an open platform to multilateral institutions, governments and the private sector to improve the pipeline of projects that can transform the continent. Channel Africa. Africa's Ntlantla Matlang reports. 
South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has officially opened the inaugural session of the African Development Bank's Africa Investment Forum, where governments, the private sector and investors from across the globe have been brought together by the African Development Bank to unlock investment opportunities. The forum is looking to structure deals and facilitate investment for the continent. It also intends to attract funds to advance the continent's infrastructure. President Cyril Ramaphosa says Africa's integration is key to attracting investment. It is vital, therefore, that we take an integrated approach to economic development both within countries and around the continent. It is up to us to harness the power of initiatives such as this Africa Investment Forum that bring together business, financial institutions, and governments in a single marketplace such as this one. It is only through partnerships that we can succeed and through mobilizing our collective resources that we can have the financial means to do what we have set out to achieve. This forum, therefore, is laying the groundwork for a new era of collaboration, of working together, that will propel us towards our goal of a prosperous, united and integrated continent. The president of the African Development Bank, Akinumi Adesina, says the forum is a truly innovative and unprecedented game changer. The Africa Investment Forum is 100% transactional platform to develop projects, de-risk deals, fast-track the closure of deals and improve the business environment for investments to thrive in Africa. The goal is simple. Allow investments to land smoothly on investment runways in Africa. At this Africa Investment Forum, Your Excellences, distinguished friends of Africa, we have 306 project transactions valued at $208 billion that have been developed. Over the next two days, 60 projects and deals worth $40.4 billion will be discussed in boardroom sessions by investors and promoters to fast-track closure of deals or to remove policy and regulatory constraints to deal closure. Several heads of state and government from across the African continent, including the president of Angola, Joaco Lorenzo, the president of Benin, Petrice Talon, the president of Cameroon, Paul Bia, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, as well as Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, are attending the forum. The chairman and the chief executive officer of the Dangote Group, Aliko Dangote, says the presence of African heads of state represents a significant shift. You see, all these leaders leaders that are here, they are beginning to see themselves essentially as CEOs of their own countries. And that's very important. You know, you come to an Africa Investment Forum, all these heads of state and prime ministers are going to be in boardroom conversations. They're not giving speeches. That's a totally different thing for Africa. Each one of them have plans of the investments in their country, the business investment, regulatory things they want to shift. They want to see investments grow. And that's, I think, the fundamental shift that we must not forget. According to the African Development Bank African Economic Outlook 2018, financing Africa's development needs will require an estimated 600 billion US dollars per annum. Of this, about 130 to 170 billion a year is needed for infrastructure. 
The forum concludes on Friday. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. South Africa currently ranks as the 125th most peaceful country in the world out of 165 countries studied. The country's ranking in the 2018 Global Peace Index has dropped two notches because of the increase in violent demonstrations and political violence. Civil society bodies, non-governmental organizations and academics have called for urgent interventions to reduce political violence in South Africa as the country prepares for general elections next year. Tabin Mbele reports. According to the Institute for Security Studies, which analyzed political violence since 2013, the vast majority of the victims and perpetrators are members or officials of the African National Congress. More than 70% of killings occurred in Guazul Natal, followed by Gauteng, the Western Cape, Eastern Cape, Bumalanga, and the Northwest. Lizette Lancaster from the Crime and Justice Information Hub at the ISS says the murders are linked to positions of power and lucrative deals and tenders. Because we know that the hitmen that are used in these types of violence and killings are often related. There are are strong correlations between especially these two types of killings and, and assassinations. And it's really important that these killings are properly investigated with support of political leadership because in the past we've seen that it has not been. She says these attacks undermine the country's democracy. Any form of violence that are perpetrated against municipal office bearers or political office bearers traumatizes not only their families, because often these assassinations or hits occur in front of relatives, especially children, but the community at large. And it also means that people do not trust democratic processes. A democracy might not be perfect, but it is the only one we have, and we have to protect all its processes in order for us to thrive as a country. Gun-free South Africa wants illegal guns to be removed from society to reduce the murders. Claire Taylor is from Gun-free South Africa. Guns are so much more lethal. Um, they're 18 times more deadly than a knife attack would be, for example. So if we reduce the availability of guns that are available in communities, uh, then we can reduce the lethality of political and other types of violence and save lives. Taylor says it's unknown how many illegal guns are there in communities. What we do know is that the guns that are illegally held are highly prized by people who cannot get them through legal channels. 
We know that handguns are highly sought after. Um, they're used most often in crimes uh, because they're small, they're concealable, they're easy to use. We know that efforts to recover these guns will make the most impact um, on reducing gun deaths in the country. 97% of, of murders in South Africa are committed with handguns. Lancaster blames corruption and poverty for high rates of crime in South Africa. Corruption is one of the key factors. And the reason why corruption is thriving is because we are sitting with extraordinarily high unemployment figures. Often political office brings about with it good salaries and opportunities for business transactions that otherwise would not be afforded to people. Both the Institute for Security Studies and Gun Free South Africa say political parties need to be united against political killings and strongly condemn the loss of lives ahead of the elections next year. I'm Tabil Mpele for SABC News in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Libya is likely to start the process of holding an election in spring next year only after a national conference to discuss its ongoing conflict. Ethiopian police are trying to identify 200 bodies after discovering a mass grave near the border between the Somali and Oromia regions. And 17 members of an insurgent group in DRC central region of Kasai were killed on Wednesday and others captured in an army ambush. Those are the stories making headlines. Let's talk about it. I'm Joe Mangria. And I'm Tabisa Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it at 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. South Africa's Parliament's Constitutional Review Committee has agreed to adopt a final report and recommendations on whether to amend the Constitution to provide for land expropriation without compensation on the 16th of this month. The committee has also agreed to give political parties that have not done so until Monday to submit written recommendations on submissions received. Joseph Musia reports. Divisions in the committee caused a delay to the start of the proceedings as members were quarrelling about the contents of last meeting's minutes. Several opposition parties objected to the minutes as they felt they did not accurately represent what happened. Kone Mulder of the Freedom Front Plus. I'm on a point of order. Chairperson, before you want to okay. put the minutes to be adopted, if there's a mistake on page 4, I think one should be allowed to point out that mistake and the House the meeting can then decide if that's correct or not. Another issue of contention was whether a report on written submissions had been rejected, which some members insisted was not the case. Debo Homukwili of the EFF. Doctor came to us with a report on detailed report on what transpired. Doctor did present 
both written submissions and oral submissions. So we, we don't know which report are you referring to. Deirdre Carter of COPE then showed that the minutes that had just been adopted were inaccurate. Committee Chairperson Louis Nzimande then indicated that it will be changed, which left Glennis Breitenbach of the DA dumbfounded. It is saying here that the report by the service provider was rejected. The, the presentation. We, no, it says the report by the right, service provider. You've adopted it. This is what we've been arguing. Yeah, we can change it, yeah. yeah. Thank we'll you, follow. thank you, Honorable Chair. I just want to be sure that I understand what, what you're saying. You're going to change the minutes after you've adopted it. That report by Joseph Musia in South Africa's Parliament in Cape Town. South Africa's former mayor for the city of Cape Town, Patricia DeLille, has laid criminal charges against four members of a democratic alliance. She says they have tarnished her name and have spread defamatory information about her. DeLille says the decision to lay criminal charges against some of her detractors is part of her attempt to clear her name. Abongwe Kobokana filed this report. Patricia DeLille says she is on a mission to clear up her name now that she is no longer occupying any public office and has resigned from the DA. And she said she wants to teach a lesson the four DA members, which include Mike Waters, Hank Hugo, Shihana Kaji, and Brownwin Engelrecht. She is accusing them of defaming her good name by allegedly reposting a fake Auditor General's report on social media, which implicated her in some wrongdoing in the city of Cape Town relating to procurement of my city buses. So I've done this because it is indefensible that public representatives insult and spread fake news about the Auditor General. As public representatives, you are supposed to uphold the constitution of the country. Chapter 9 institutions are there to underpin our democracy. And I want to teach them a lesson. I've also written written to Speaker uh, Baleka Mbete to lay a complaint in terms of the ethics code of Parliament. Delil says like any other citizen, she has a right not to have her name tarnished. I am still on that mission to clear my name. I've got the law and the constitution on my side and the truth. And the defamation will be, not that I'm looking for money, but it's the principle. My fight is never being about the position, it's about the principle and upholding our constitution. She also blamed the leader of the DA, Musimai Mane, for not taking action against the MPs. We also need to challenge Musima Mane, who always speaks about accountability. I've always said that I'm prepared to be held accountable. He has failed to hold four senior DA members accountable for uh, spreading the fake news, for forging the Auditor General's uh, uh, um, signature, and it just shows you the hypocrisy. DA has declined to comment. Abongwe Kobogan is ABC News in Cape Town. A devastating bacterial infection has killed nine babies in South Africa's Gauteng province in an outbreak which spanned one year. This according to the South African Human Rights Commission following a site visit to the Rahima Musa Mother and Child Hospital in Johannesburg. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases was unable to pinpoint the bacteria that caused the infection but ruled out poor hygiene. Candace Nolan has the details. It started a year ago, and by the end of August, it just died down. 
The bacteria infects the intestines, punching holes into the wall. Stool then spills over into the infant's abdomen, which can cause death. 42 infants picked up this infection at Rahima Musa. 90% were premature births. The hospital contacted the National Institute for Communicable Disease. Frighteningly, they could not isolate a single bacteria that could have caused the infections. SA Human Rights Commission spokesperson Buang Jones. And 75% of these babies, uh, who out of the 42, had no bacteria. And in each of these cases, the, uh, the, the NICD could not identify um, one bacteria that, uh, that, that caused this. They took samples of stool and, and all, all, all tests uh, were, were negative. To take action, hospital officials were unable to comment and referred all queries to the departmental spokesperson who was not immediately available for comment. Candace Nolan, SABC News, Johannesburg. Today marks World Adoption Day, observed annually on the 9th of November. The day is aimed at raising awareness of adoptions in communities and the positive changes it brings in the lives of families brought together through adoption. The National Adoption Coalition of South Africa says there are many children who could benefit from adoption. However, adoptions in the country are sadly showing a steady decline. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Tembi Mahlangu from ABBA Specialist Adoption and Social Services. Good morning, Tembi, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Now, take us through the situation around adoption in South Africa. How serious is the decline? Yeah, it's declined a lot, uh, especially comparing with our last year's statistics. It showed that about 1,000 uh, adoption has decreased. So this is the highest number. Now, what's the, what's the, what is the cause of the decline in the adoption rate in the country? I think that the obstacles that we are facing at the moment is uh, limited information or lack of information in the country as a whole. People don't know where to go to adopt and people are, uh, I, I can't say that they are neglecting, but I think they are unaware of the statistics of the orphanages. Now, Tembi, let's speak about, uh, for instance, in uh, um, the black community, a lot of uh, families take in children who are not biologically their children, but they take those Mm -hmm. children in, um, whether they're Mm -hmm. relatives, children, and so on, and they bring them up to adulthood, and they are Mm -hmm. then the parents. Is this regarded as adoption, or is there a difference between between being a guardian and being being, uh, you know, somebody who's adopted children? Yeah, what we have witnessed in our black community, what do they do? They do foster care. And with the foster care, there's a foster care grant. So a lot of people, they follow the foster care road instead of adoption. And whatever in other families, black families, where there is adoption, it's not legal adoption. It's an adoption that is not in black and white. It's the adoption that because my sister has died, I'm just raising my sister's child, not knowing that you can go the road of uh, adopting that child illegally. So now, people, they don't have that information 
of where to go and what they can do the adoption to be legally. Now, adoption is—is is, is it a complicated uh, um, form, or is it a, a complicated issue? Does it cost anything? And what are the um, myths and uh, you know uh, uh, misconceptions and perceptions about adoption? Adoption is good because if you adopt the child, the child it will be alive. It will be like a child that born from you. But if you didn't adopt the child, the child is not like your own biological child, although you will be raising that child as if it's a child that born from you. So adoption, it helps you to legalize your being a parent to that child. And it's a permanent option. It's not that uh, other days they will, can remove the child from you or someone can claim the child from you. Because other adoptions that are happening in our black community, in our family, you find out that you raise the child of your brother, but your brother will know that this is his child. And after the child grow up, the brother come and blame the child, but you were in agreement that you adopted the child. So it's very important to follow the legal road so that you know that this is my own child and it's in court because the adoption would not go just to end between the two of you, but the legal road that you follow. Are there any cost implications with regards to adoption? Um, the costs are, are different because there's family adoption where you adopt in the family the child. There's a non-related adoption, so are not the same. And then the cost, um, people will find out saying that I can't adopt because I can't afford financially. We can, you can adopt the child without paying anything because what you are paying, you are not paying for the child. You don't buy the child, but you are paying for the service that will be rendered for you to adopt the child. Tembi, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Tembi Matlangu from South African Child Protection Organization, ABBA Adoptions, joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The Africa Investment Forum taking place in South Africa in Santin, north of Johannesburg, comes to an end this afternoon. Organizers will hold a closing ceremony where they will explain what pronouncements have been made and what deals have been signed. The forum has identified 61 bankable African projects valued at 40 billion US dollars. Homoto Mubulana reports. South Africa has about 592 million US dollars worth of projects with the African Development Bank, mostly on energy. The bank announced earlier this week that it plans to further lend South Africa an additional 10 billion rands for power utility ESCOM for the 2019-2020 financial period. Lusophone countries have also identified a pipeline project of more than 5 billion US dollars in the private sector and private-public partnership projects to accelerate growth in the economies. The projects form part of a development finance compact between the bank, the government of Portugal and six Portuguese-speaking countries of Africa. 
Nigeria's Central Bank plans to meet four lenders of telecoms company MTN to discuss a dispute over an 8.1 billion US dollar fund transfer after a court adjourned the case. The bank emailed invitations on Thursday to the Nigeria heads of the financial services Standard Chartered, Citibank, Stanbeck IBTC Bank and Diamond Bank to attend a meeting on Friday. Nigeria's Central Bank is accusing South Africa-based MTN of violating currency regulations by sending. $8.1 billion abroad in August and ordered the company and its banks to repatriate the funds. Zimbabwe's Mines Minister Winston Chitando says he expects to announce a diamond policy later this month which will regularize the operations of the state-owned Zimbabwe Consolidated Diamond Company ZCDC. The policy is expected to lead to the unbundling of ZCDC and put legal requirements for mining companies to have corporate social responsibility programs. Zimbabwe Consolidated Diamond Company was established in 2015 after government cancelled licenses of miners in the Chiazwa fields and consolidated all the diamond mining concessions in the area. Kenya is hosting an international forum on recycling plastic bottles. A year since the use of plastic materials for packaging was banned, the forum, organized by Kenya PET Recycling Company, is featuring the Ministry of Environment and Forestry, National Environment Management Authority, Embassy of the Netherlands and Manufacturers' Lobbies. It's taking place at Kenyatta International Christian Church. The firm says a local plastic bottle recycling industry processes 20,000 tons annually. The South African brewery has officially launched a 56,000 US dollar state-of-the-art production line in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape province. The line, which is operated predominantly by women, is reported to have already created dozens of jobs. A brewery operations director in South Africa, Tutuka Numalo, says locals will benefit. The plan is, well, although now we're only doubling the capacity to 3.6 million hectolitres, is that should we continue to grow, we'll continue to invest uh, in the local area. When we, when we build plants like this or a line like this, we always look at recruiting people from the local area instead of fetching people from, from another province. Um, I suppose, I mean, small numbers. To run a line, probably you need about 50 to 60 people. And each line that we build, we're going to be investing in additional jobs, uh, both in the production plant as well as in the warehouse. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.37 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.68 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.73 Brazilian roll, at 66.37 Russian ruble, and at 72.16 Indian rupee. At 6.92 Chinese yuan and at $14 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,220. Platinum, $8.56 at dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $70.70 a barrel from an African perspective.
Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with rugby news. The experienced trio of Veli Leroux, Fav de Clerc, and Franco Mostert are back in the Springbok starting team for Saturday's test against France at a Stade de France in Paris. The match in the French capital is South Africa's second fixture of the year. Uh, That's a year end to the United Kingdom and France and kicks off at the 2200 hours Central African time. The inclusion of Leroux, de Clerc, and Mostert with closed 100 test caps between them are the only changes announced by coach Rassi Erasmus to the run-on team when he confirmed the Springbok match 23. Meanwhile, Montpellier, number 8, Louis Picamoles, who weighs in around 115 kilograms and stands at 1.92 meter tall, has been named in France's starting lineup to take on South Africa in Paris. The match will be Picamoles' first start for Le Bleu since their 23-23 draw with Japan in Nanteri last November. In Netball South Africa, NSA President Cecilia Mulukwane says preparations for the 2018 Diamond Challenge are going well. And uh, this will be happening at the Mwakurama Clodi Indoor Sports Complex in South Africa's Limbobo province from the 27th of November until the 1st of December. This edition will feature South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, Namibia and South Africa's President 12. We are going to be having our own selections on the 22nd and 23rd of this month when the coach comes in from Australia just to see if she still wants to work with the Quadsiris team or maybe she can get some of those that were injured or some of those that she thinks can, you know, participate on an African, you know, soil and competition. So we're still waiting for that. And the President's 12th is also going to participate. So it's going to be quite exciting because it will be for the first time that in Diamond Challenge we've got six teams because we never always had six teams. It was all about four teams, you know, three teams from Africa or sometimes three teams, two, and then one as as us. So it's history in the making. We're waiting to see all of us feeling Wakuramatel. Mulukwane further says that the floor will be laid in the venue on the 22nd as well. I think it's the first of many. Let's see, and it's a test also, let's see what the Limpopo people will do. I trust that our people will support because that's the one thing we need. Remember for sponsors to come on board, they want to see if the sport is really supported or whatever. So it's us as netball people and it's us as sports people to come out in numbers to support because playing on an empty stadium doesn't give a very good picture to media, especially because all these games will be televised live on Supersport. So I think we should work together to make sure that the stadiums are filled and finally, Sergio Garcia shot a flawless 64 to take a four-shot lead at the ongoing NetBank Golf Challenge at Sun City in South Africa's Northwest Province. He bedded three of the last four holes in an impressive opening round. South Africa's Charles Schwarzel, Francis Mike Lorenzo Vera and Finn Miko Kohinen are tied in second after shooting opening rounds of 68. The second round today will get underway at 8.50 Central African time. Garcia was happy with one of the lowest rounds of the past three years.
I'm very, very excited. I'm very pleased about the round. Um, this is not a golf course that uh, that plays easy and, and wins a little bit breezy like it was today. And as much as the, the wind swirls, it's even tougher. But um, I managed to uh, to keep the ball in play nicely. Um, I, uh, you know, hit a lot of greens, which is which is important to do here uh, with the, with the little spots that, that you can put the pins in. And and I managed to roll some nice putts. So, you know, it was a good combination of um, the whole game. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Ethiopia's new president vows to work hard to maintain peace in the region. And U.S. inquiry into alleged Russian meddling during the 2016 election could be under threat. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Khomuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Mama Miriam Makeba with a song titled Aluta Continua. <laughs>